Hey everybody, welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're checking out the dark side of DC. We're going to recap and review Hellblazer comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Preacher, Vertigo. <laughs> you know what, let's just go with it. Alright, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are not talking about Hellblazer today. We're going to talk about Sandman as we come to the conclusion of the Season of Mists. It was a long and winding road. Yeah, previously in The Sandman, Lucifer had gotten his revenge on Morpheus by quitting his job and throwing all the demons and damned out of hell and handing the keys over to Dream. Who is also Morpheus. That's right, That's same guy. guy. It's a bloke what he was getting revenge on. Now, Morpheus quickly learned that there was a lot of demand for that psychic real estate. He was met by contingents from a whole bunch of spiritual entities who want it. Norse gods, Egyptian gods, Japanese gods, chaos and order, all the demons. Am I missing anybody? Oh, well, there's angels there, too, but they don't want it. They're just kind of observing the proceedings? Right, exactly. Now, we saw that this was causing a certain amount of consternation on Earth, as the damned, having nowhere else to go, are there wreaking havoc. But that's not really going to affect the storyline from here on out. I always thought that England was the consternation, because that's where Constantine lives. Okay. <laughs> it's the nation that he lives in, Sean. So we got three issues today, starting with Sandman number 26. Yes, uh, Sandman 26 was written by Neil Gaiman, with art by Kelly Jones. I should say pencils by Kelly Jones, and inks by George Pratt. And it is titled simply Season of Mists, Episode... Five, although the cover gives us an expanded title, in which a banquet is held and of what comes after, concerning diplomacy in bedrooms, blackmail and threats, and an unusual recipe for sausages. Right. So this cover is by Dave McKeon, and it has the key on it, and also some other shit. There's kind of a weird gadget here, made up of a seashell and some other pieces. Bum -ba -da -ba -da, inspector Gadget. <laughs> I'm gonna move right along. Okay, so we open with Cluricon arriving from the realm of fairy. That's right. Cluricon is here as an envoy to discuss the disposition of Hell, and he is accompanied by his sister Nuala. Yeah, and they are greeted by the three guardians of the Gate of the Dreaming. Probably worth mentioning here that when we say that they're agents of fairy, we mean that they're agents of Oberon and Titania, who we met back in the Midsummer Night's Dream issue. Right, the king and queen of the fairies. That's right. They find their way into the palace, welcomed by Morpheus in person. Yeah, and they're told that they are only two of many arrivals in the past day. That's right. We find the various bidders for hell having dinner. Thor is flirting pretty openly with Bast, who's not taking it all that well. Yeah. And she's bare-breasted at this point. This is true. Thor. Nope, not Thor. That was about to be an interesting sentence. Bast, excuse me, is a humanoid woman with a cat head and otherwise is purple-furred. Yeah. And Thor, as we have seen, is a very large red-haired man with little tiny wrists and hands and ankles. Yeah, and he's behaving like quite the lout on this page. Do you want to play with my hammer? Eh, Miss Pussyhead? It's called Milner. If I rub it, it gets bigger. It's true. Yeah. Meanwhile, Loki is not enjoying the meal, and Odin asks him for his observations. Right, he's just sort of taking everything in. 
And also present at this banquet are mortal dreamers who Morpheus seems to have dragooned into service as waiters. They're delivering the meals to the various ambassadors, and they're in their pajamas. Yeah, and they are having a little uh, dreamy time love connection, or at least a one-sided dreamy time love connection, but more on that later. Right. Now, Chloricon has been charged to neither eat nor sleep before he delivers the message to Morpheus, and so he does. The Roma Fairy wants Hell to remain empty. It seems that they owe nine of their most beautiful to Hell every so many years, and they want nobody to own Hell so that nobody owns that debt. Right. This is a really interesting piece of backstory, and one wonders how it came about. Yeah. As it happens, we don't really find out anything more about it. But it's interesting to think that the various sort of world mythologies have political relations with each other. Yeah, well, the fairies have something to do with hell, that's for sure, and we don't know what. Chloricon also mentions here that Nuala is intended as a gift for Morpheus, to which she doesn't seem particularly charmed. Yeah, now, it's interesting, because later it kind of seems like she doesn't know this, even though they talk about it right in front of her. Well, I think that she understands herself to be to be the payment for Morpheus if he accepts fairies' offer. Those are not exactly the terms of her presence here, as we will find out. I see. So Chloricon, having delivered his message, starts to get a little overzealous. He uh, reaches out and grabs Morpheus's robe, only to be swiftly reproached. You have delivered your message, and you heard my response. Your obligation is fulfilled. The matter is ended, Chloricon. Your impertinence invites my severest displeasure. So they have a seat at the banquet table and order their weird dinners. Yeah, now Nuala eats primarily flower blossoms, whereas Chloricon is partaking of a liquid repast. <laughs> he just orders a bunch of wine, right? Yeah, he asks for a bottle of wine and a glass. No, forget the glass, but make it two bottles. <laughs> so now we cut back to Loki's observations of the scene. And uh, what is up with them angels? Yeah, that's right. The angels are neither eating nor conversing, just watching everybody else. They're even more observy than Loki himself. <laughs> That's right. And even he can't figure out what they're thinking. There are a couple of other noteworthy things at dinner here. I like that Anubis is feasting on human hearts, or the dreams of human hearts, perhaps. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. The Dream Palace is basically able to fashion a dream of whatever you want for the envoys to feed on. Yeah, also we see that Karanzin is flirting with Merkin, and that's going to come back in a minute. That's right. These are two of the demons who are here to negotiate on behalf of Hell. Karanzin we met all the way back in Sandman's first trip to Hell in Sandman number four. Sandman number four. It's our most frequently called back <laughs> issue of Sandman. It's a really good one. We liked it. Yeah, we liked it a lot. But it also has a lot of plot significance. Now, uh, we should also note here that Karanzin and Merkin are both here second to the command of Azazel, who is their boss. That's right, the latest ruler of hell, in the absence of Lucifer. Well, we should say the latest ruler of the demons. He's hoping to become the ruler of hell, but he isn't yet. Yeah, that's right. Basically, as soon as he became in charge, he was also kicked out. Exactly. I also enjoy here that the Lord of Order, having arrived at the party in the form of a cardboard box, has his servant sweep plates full of food into the open top of the box. I didn't notice that. Oh, that's really funny. 
And the representative of chaos in the form of a six-year-old girl is just chowing down on mountains of ice cream. That would be Shivering Jemmy of the Shallow Brigade. That's a lot of fun. Okay, so on page eight, we find out that Odin has a thing. (laughs) What? Yeah, Odin has a thing that he wants to offer to Morpheus. Oh, okay, an offer of a gift in exchange for hell. Right, but we don't find out what his thing is just yet. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of those. We also learn right around here that Karamzin and Merkin know that Azazel has some secret inducement intended for Morpheus. We know that he has captive Nada, the woman that Morpheus went to hell to retrieve in the first place. Right, off that's, this whole what, thing. that's what kicked off this whole story arc. He decided very belatedly to go to hell and uh, fix his mistake of condemning Nada there. And to briefly recap, Nada was his girlfriend about 10,000 years ago. She didn't want to stay with him because it is not given to mortals to love the Endless. And when he wouldn't leave her alone, she basically threw herself off a cliff. Yeah, we learned about most of this in the interlude to A Doll's House. That's right. This was, I believe, Sandman number nine. Actually, I think I keep calling it A Doll's House, but that's something else. This story arc was just called... Doll's House or The Doll's House? I think it's The Doll's House. Okay. Anyway, so the flirtation between Karanzin and Merkin continues. Some of the other bidders set up secret meetings with Morpheus to take place after the banquet. Yeah, he basically tells everybody, we will deal after dinner, and they're going to come see him individually to, to share their bids. Yeah, and it's at this point that we see the amazing Kane. Do you want to talk about the two dreamers here? Well, as I said, they're having a a bit of a a love connection, or at least one of them is. The guy is entreating the girl to to share her name because he feels like he knows her uh, and feels like he wants to know her. Mm -hmm. And she is focused on the task at hand. Right. They're compelled to serve the diners. So, the amazing Kane and his glamorous assistant Gregory. Right, now who is Gregory? Gregory is Cain's gargoyle. This but he great seems big to be... monster that uh, found Morpheus when Morpheus ended up in the houses of mystery and secrets way back in Sandman number two. But he seems to have taken human form now. Don't really get a look at Gregory's involvement in the Amazing Cain's magic act, other than the fact that his claw is sticking out from behind the curtain here. Oh, I see. That's not Gregory, and that's Abel who's in the box. Right, these are Cain and Abel, the characters from the first story. And we are about to see that story replayed here tonight. Cain is performing a magic act which seems to begin with sawing Abel in half. Right, and somewhat disturbingly, his reaction is such that Shivering Jemmy refers to him as Mr. Shouty. Yeah, that's right, that's Abel's reaction to his role in the magic act. Exactly. Kind of macabre humor. Yeah, definitely. So as the banquet breaks up, it looks like Abel is well and truly severed, and uh, Bast begins to complain to Morpheus about Thor's behavior. Right, Thor's rather forward behavior. Uninterested in the entertainment are Karanzin and Merkin, who repair off to their room for a little together time. Yeah, and it doesn't take long before, as they're getting physical... Spiders issue forth from her womb, 
and she wraps Karanzin up like a mummy. Yeah, I don't know if the spiders are an ordinary part of the Merkin's sex life or are only used when she's trying to capture somebody. It's a fairly intimidating sexual prospect. Maybe she only has sex with people by wrapping them up like, like a mummy. I mean, it's very possible. She is a demon. In any event, Karanzin is now wrapped up in webs, and Merkin reveals what Azazel's secret second inducement for Morpheus is. Yeah, the second gift is Karanzin himself. Right, who Morpheus dueled with during his trip to hell in Sandman number 4. Right, and the demons fancy that he might want some vanganza. Yeah. So we cut back to the banquet. It looks like Cain has made sausages out of Abel. Yeah, and this is made fairly apparent as Jemmy asks from off screen, Did Mr. Shabby really be sausages? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Morpheus advises that the banquet is now over, and he suggests that people leave soon, since the room will cease to exist shortly. I thought that was really fun. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that bit, too. Now, this is also our final panel of the two would-be lovers. He is making one last entreaty to learn her name before they have to part ways, but she is being woken by the doorbell. Right. And Basically disappears before she can respond. Yeah. Well, with dinner over, it's time for Morpheus to hear the offers. So one at a time, the bidders arrive in his throne room. I want to note here that to each bidder, he appears in somewhat different clothes and aspect. And some of them even have a unique sort of art style for themselves. Yeah, and that distinctive art style starts on this page where we get a very ugly drawing of Thor. Yes, Thor is fall down drunk and is voicing his nonchalance at Morpheus's ability to conjure flames, which he uses to summon the envoys to his room. It's nothing special doing flames. Anyone can do flames. I can do lightning. That's bloody hot. Yeah, and he's drawn here as a grotesque-looking knot of overgrown muscles. Yeah, that's right. This is Kelly Jones' art, so there's a lot of deep pools of shadow throughout this issue. And the next one. So we start with Morpheus taking an audience with Odin, and Odin explains his reasoning for wanting hell. Right, his plan is basically to not be in Asgard when Ragnarok happens and therefore avoid it. Right, he says that Ragnarok is the only thing on his mind. He's trying to work a way around it basically all the time. And one of the things that he's done to try to figure his way out of Ragnarok is created a small dimension in which Ragnarok is happening. Right, and in addition to the Aesir, there are also dream fighters there. Right. I do not know how they got there, nor why they fight these little mortal heroes. And one of these little mortal heroes has a fraction of Morpheus's soul in it. It's a little copy of Morpheus. Now, we see this guy, this little guy with a mask and a green suit coat and cape. Apparently one of the superhero sandsmen. Uh, we see him punching out a frost giant. Aha, so we do. I had not noticed that. So yeah, he offers this little dream fighter to Morpheus as a bit of a sweetener. But Morpheus displays only marginal interest. Right. You're a cool one, Dreamweaver. Sometimes I think you could almost be one of the Aesir. I am myself, Odin One-Eye. And? And I keep my own counsel. I will give my decision tomorrow to all of you. There is nothing more to be said. 
Next up is Shivering Jemmy, representing Chaos. She doesn't really have an offer so much as a threat. And a balloon. <laughs> That's right. Now, Jemmy transforms into a huge monster several times Morpheus's size, and boasts that if he doesn't hand over hell, the entire host of Chaos will be at Morpheus's throat until the end of time. Right. That includes the Shivering Brigade and the Laughing Dancers. But it's not all vinegar. She also hands over a little red balloon to Morpheus. Just as a courtesy. Yes, indeed. Uh, he is not particularly frightened, it's worth mentioning. Next up is Order. The cardboard box prints out a note. Yeah, Order, it seems, has been collecting the dream essences of the recently deceased for some time now and offers to return them to Morpheus if they get their way. But Morpheus just refers to these essences as something that I would have collected for myself had I a need for it. Right, he's not some collector holding on endlessly to that which has no purpose. Right, now, Order also suggests that it can make a logical argument why it should have the hell, which it will do tomorrow. Yeah, by tomorrow it's going to be too late, pal. Yeah, that's when he's going to announce who gets hell. Yeah, should have tried harder. Next up in a very dramatic art shift is Susano no Mikoto, the representative of the gods of Japan. Yeah, and he mentions that the gods of Japan have been making some big moves lately. That's right. They were taking over our other pantheons and bringing in aspects of other pantheons that appeal to them. Yeah, they recently acquired Marilyn Monroe. As well as King Kong and Lady Liberty. Susanoo also points out that they can run hell most efficiently, and therefore they should be the ones to have it. Yeah, I found this a little bit racist. It seems to be a joke about the corporate culture of Japan in the 80s. Yeah, I thought so too. In any event... Morpheus once again promises to make his decision tomorrow. He has a meeting with Bast. As an inducement, she mentions that since she's the goddess of all cats, and cats can see things that other people and other creatures can't, that she knows all sorts of secrets that could be of help to Morpheus. And one specific secret that she offers him, the location of his missing brother, the seventh endless, the prodigal. Now, we met six of Morpheus's family, himself included, at the beginning of this story arc. They had a basically a family meeting at which Morpheus decided to go into hell and rescue Nada. Right. The seventh disappeared some years ago. Yeah, and has not, in this comic book, yet been named. It also seems to me that Bast definitely has a bit of a thing for Morpheus, and they may even be an ex-couple. Okay, I didn't really pick up that you vibe. Didn't really read but, that? But I, I buy it. It's a possibility. Between envoys, Morpheus has a brief chat with Matthew, who it turns out has been enjoying a conversation with Hugin and Munin, Odin's ravens. Yeah, that makes sense. It always seemed sort of Odin-inspired to me that Morpheus should have a raven as well. Yeah. Now, Thor, in his drunken discomfort, has made a thunderstorm which Morpheus has to quickly rectify. Yeah, he literally rectifies it by thinking for a second, and there, it is done. Yeah, I also like that he's holding the balloon as he sits here on his throne. Yes, which he gives to Matthew at the end of the conversation. Finally, Azazel has an offer to make, and he has not one, but two gifts. Notably here, Azazel gives a long speech as to why the demons deserve hell back, 
We saw in a previous issue of the storyline that Azazel is quite a charismatic leader of the demons. He's won a lot of demons to his side with his honeyed words. Yeah, speaking of word games, I like how he refers to the contest that took place between Karanzan and Dream as the oldest game. Right. If Morpheus gives hell back to the demons, then Morpheus gets both Nada, who he wanted to save, and Karanzan, who they think he might want a little revenge upon. But Azazel also has a threat here. If he doesn't get his way, he promises to devour Nada's soul. She will be a part of Azazel forever, if that happens. But to Azazel's surprise, Morpheus is not ready to make his decision yet. Thank you, Azazel. I will take the matter under consideration. You may leave now. What do you mean, take the matter under consideration? You want the girl, don't you? You went to hell for her. Surely you'll trade her for a key that cost you nothing that you don't even want. Azazel, you have told me what you are offering me. I have understood you. You will hear my decision tomorrow. Now, go. So he handles Azazel quite firmly. <laughs> He's not taking any shit in his own castle. Yeah, which was fun to see because Azazel's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. Left alone now, Dream is lost in thought, unsure how to make this decision. And we sort of get a recap of each of the offers here. That's right. He holds the key in his hand, and he drops it to the ground. If only it were that easy. If I could just throw it away. And that brings us to the uh, end of issue 26. End of the series. It was canceled here, and uh, the story was left unfinished. So what's our next new series on Vertiguys? Astro City. (laughs) All right, sounds good. See you all next week, folks. Nope, nope, just kidding. That brings us to Sandman number 27. Season of Mists, episode 6, in which the vexing question of the sovereignty of hell is finally settled to the satisfaction of some, the finer points of hospitality, and in which it is demonstrated that while some may fall, others are pushed. I don't want to spoil anything for you guys, but this is a really good issue. Sweet. I'm glad they didn't cancel the series. Um... (laughs) Like the previous issue, this one was written by Neil Gaiman and has pencils by Kelly Jones, but this time around the inks are by an artist named Dick Giordano. The cover is by Dave McKeon, as usual, and this one depicts an angel sort of thrashing in the darkness. Page one, Cluicon and Nuala are discussing. Cluicon, it seems, has just had a one-night stand, and he's saying that The fairies don't actually stand a chance of getting their way with hell. The best they can hope for is some good food, well, specifically some good wine and some good sex. Yeah, a couple of things I want to note on this page, and one is that, for what it's worth, Chloricon's one-night stand, uh, Seneferu, a minor Egyptian temple priest or dead king or something, um, is a guy. Chloricon swings every which way. Okay. Uh, Another is just that the... Inking seems much cleaner immediately. This is Kelly Jones, so we still get deep pools of shadow, but I would say that the borders of shapes are much clearer. Yeah, inkers have a huge, somewhat unsung impact on the look of a page, and that's readily apparent here. Thuricon and Seneferu incidentally have just barged into Nuala's room. Good morning, pretty sister. Our host has finally seen fit to let the sun rise. A bright new day has dawned. 
I enjoy the implication that this night has actually been much longer than a night. Uh, Morpheus, in his complete control over the heart of the dreaming, has not allowed the sun to rise until he was ready to make his decision. Right, he sat there thinking for a long time. And eventually he must have given up, because we're about to find out that he actually didn't come to a decision. Yeah, now, incidentally, Nuala is sleeping in the nude, and there's quite a bit of... I don't quite want to say male gaze here, but quite a bit of focus on her body over the next couple of pages. I've called that out repeatedly, and this time I think it kind of works, given something that we're about to find out about Nuala in this issue. Alright, well, we'll have to see. And we follow Nuala here for a couple pages as she uh, wanders through the Dream Palace. Now, one of the things that she overhears is that the Egyptians were playing a little bit of a trick on Morpheus. They don't actually have the location of his missing brother. They only know a few facts that might help guide the way. Right. It also appears that she um, walks past a couple of newcomers at this point, who I didn't recognize as anybody we'd seen before. Oh yeah, this Merlin-looking guy and this faceless dude. Right, did you know who they were supposed to be? Honestly, my suspicion was that they might be Marvel characters. This faceless guy, I can't place him exactly, but he looks an awful lot like one of the cosmic beings that we would see in a Marvel comic. But maybe that's just a stylistic thing. Fair enough. The Marvel pantheon is among those who have come. The Merlin-looking character is wearing a hat with stars and moons on it. Kind of a sorcerer's apprentice hat. (laughs) Yeah, or just a very classic wizard hat. So as she walks by Loki, he begins to flirt with her. And Thor, who is incredibly hungover and having a very bad morning, does not take kindly to that at all, and he wraps his massive fist around Loki's neck. For the last time, you are only permitted to talk to me, or to Lord Odin, or else I'll splinter every bone in your body with my bare hands. You are not trusted, and I'm in a really foul mood this morning. Kluakan interrupts. Nuala, come in. Everybody's here. And I do mean everybody. And we get a two-page spread of a vast ballroom where all the gods we've seen so far and a couple that we haven't are assembled. Right, everybody is here except Morpheus, who is apparently still making up his mind. Everybody wonders where he is, and we catch up with him having another conversation with Matthew. Yeah, he says he hasn't made up his mind yet, and he refers to this whole situation as a path through mist, which is almost a title drop. Yeah, yeah. They all want it. I don't. I never thought that disposing of the unwanted could be so hard. I also like here that Matthew points out that Morpheus looks like he hasn't slept, to which Morpheus replies that he never sleeps. Yeah, and I like Matthew's reply. I didn't say you did. I just said that was what you looked like. (laughs) So Matthew has some sort of everyman wisdom for Morpheus. Here with more substantial advice is Remiel, one of the two angels. And what's his advice? Well, he has a message... And when Morpheus asks what it is, his eyes go white and he is in receiving mode. Yeah, that's right. And this looks pretty cool. We, I will relay the message. It is from my creator. There must be a hell. There must be a place for the demons. A place for the damned. Hell is heaven's reflection. It is heaven's shadow. They define each other. Reward and punishment. 
hope and despair. There must be a hell, for without hell, heaven has no meaning. And thus, hell must be... And then all of a sudden he seems to break free. No! No, he cannot wish that. That is wrong. We have done nothing to offend the name. Nothing that would warrant this. Yeah, it's like he's relaying the message as he's receiving it. And suddenly he realizes what it means. What is it, Ramiel? What are you saying? I am saying, I have been told to say, that hell cannot be entrusted to other than those who serve the name directly. It is too important that myself and Duma are to take over hell, that it will be under our control as representatives of the name, and that we can never return to the Silver City. We can never again enter the presence. But this is neither fair nor just. We have done nothing to be cast out. We have never rebelled. We have fought bravely side by side against the armies of Lucifer. We are of the host. Does he not understand what this means? To be exiled into the darkness? To be banished from the Creator's light, his grace? We are too pure for our feet ever to touch the base clay. Why then should we be forced into the pit? This is... this is wrong. We cannot. We must not. Hell is for the evil. Hell is for those who have offended against his love. Hell is for... I... I will rebel. Like Lucifer, I will protest. This is wrong. But how can I rebel? Where could I go if I did? Lord? I think the portrayal of Ramiel across this couple of pages is really interesting. The angels are normally these vast, bright, larger-than-life figures shedding light all around them, incredibly imposing. And as he, as he realizes the impact of the message and as he considers rebelling, he shifts to look much more human briefly. Yeah, there's also a really interesting theological sort of reversal of cause and effect here. Like, instead of becoming a fallen angel because he rebelled against God, he rebels against God because he's become a fallen angel. And it really sort of highlights the philosophical question of uh, free will. Right, the question that Lucifer raised back a couple of issues ago when he was quitting his job. Did I ever really rebel, or was even that part of God's plan? It's worth pointing out here that there is a panel, as he's mulling this over, showing his feet and Morpheus's side by side, both standing on the clay. Now, Remiel begs the Lord to take this burden away from him, but just to his left is Duma, the Angel of Silence, taking it silently. Just uh, tears running down his face, but no outward reaction. And Remiel essentially decides that since Duma is accepting this sentence, he has to accept it as well. He can't let somebody else suffer something that he turned down. Now, at this point, the decision has been made for Morpheus, which lifts quite a weight off his shoulders. If you want it, Duma, it is yours. So with that, Morpheus steps out to face the delegates and makes his announcement. Yeah, and now we get Thor telling a body joke. She said, you're Thor. I'm so Thor, I can hardly piff. <laughs> If you don't hold your stupid tongue, Thunder God, then then once I rule hell, I shall not rest until your tongue hangs from a hook on the wall of my throne room. Clearly, tensions rising between the delegates, particularly Thor and Azazel here. As much as Thor is a no-good, rude lout in this portrayal, yeah. Azazel is actually the one being a dick here. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Thor just told a hilarious joke, and he's being very presumptuous. Morpheus steps in. 
I had assumed you would wait for me to make an announcement before electing yourselves lords of hell. I see I was wrong. He reveals that he cannot give the key to hell to anyone, and everybody reacts in shock, except for Cluricon, who's pretty happy about that. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Odin asks why he cannot dispose of the key to hell, and Remiel answers. Because it is no longer his to dispose of. We have taken back the key. Hell will again be the abode of the damned and the demons. The damned will return to hell, and there they will once again be punished. The demons may once more take up residence in hell and will be expected to play their part in the rehabilitation of the damned. The war between heaven and hell is over. Morpheus essentially considers this to be no decision, not a decision of his. Hell always belonged to its creator, and it remains in his hands. Yeah, he certainly doesn't expect to uh, suffer consequences for not making the choice that the others wanted him to make, but Azazel begs to differ. I know your rules. You offered us hospitality when we arrived. You can do nothing now to harm any of us. I will leave here as I came. And Nada, your little human sweetheart, will leave here with me. I said I would devour her soul, and I will. Slowly, though, a bite at a time, and with every bite I will be thinking of you. Oh, Azazel. I offered hospitality to all my visitors. That includes both those I knew about and those I did not. Yes, you may have my hospitality and are under my protection, but so is Karanzan, and so is Nada. I will not see them hurt. This is a great let's get dangerous moment from Morpheus as he looks up with the cubic stare at Azazel and we see his eyes glowing like stars. Yeah, it's pretty badass. If you want her, Dream Squatter, then come and get her, if you've got the balls. I renounce your hospitality. That was a mistake. Morpheus dives headlong into Azazel, which we probably have not mentioned in this episode, is basically a starfield floating in space with dozens of mouths showing. Right, he's more uh, a realm than a creature, as we see once Morpheus is inside him. Yeah, and this is just a cool shot. Morpheus's cape trailing out of Azazel as he dives in. Yeah, now we get Morpheus doing a bit of a karate pose, <laughs> it looks like. Once he's inside Azazel, we find him in t-shirt and jeans, which is a look that we've seen him in a lot recently. After all the talking and negotiating and threats, it's finally time for a fight scene. Of a sort. I did not believe you would be willing to enter into us, Dreamer. But I did, Azazel. Yes, yes, you did. Very well. Find them and release them, and they are yours, and you may leave me freely. Fail, and I will feast on their souls, and on yours. And for all that, he actually finds them pretty quickly. Yeah, he dives through an open mouth and finds Karanzan sitting by himself looking depressed. Karanzan, incidentally, is in his boxers here, which is pretty funny. Yeah, quite distinct from the tuxedo casual look that we saw before. Yeah, Karanzan is not particularly happy to see Morpheus, knowing that Azazel planned to hand him over for torture. I am not here to torture you, Karanzan. Take my hand. That's one of them, Azazel. He forces open another giant jaw and finds inside Nada. And it's worth noting as he interacts with Nada on this page and the next that as we've seen before, Morpheus appears as a black man to Nada. It's also worth noting that he finds Nada and Karanzan basically on the same page. 
So it's definitely intentional that we get this impression that he's finding them very quickly. Yeah. Rather than it being much of a challenge for him. You're sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Nada is also not taking her latest encounter with Morpheus all that well. She's rather surprised that he's come to free her after all this time. But he says, there's no time to talk, just take my hand. And she does. Azazel, I have freed them both. Indeed. I said that you could leave if you freed them, did I not? Yes, you did. I lied. You're mine now, Dream Lord. Mine to consume at my leisure. And when I've eaten your soul, your... Azazel? Where are you? It was unwise of you to attempt to harm me, Azazel. Elsewhere, perhaps. But not here. So Azazel basically has no plans of letting Morpheus out of its body. But as Azazel gloats, we pan backwards to find Azazel in a jar being held by Morpheus. Right. Azazel has rejected Morpheus's hospitality in the seat of his power, and it's child's play at this point for Morpheus to use his ability to shape reality in the dreaming to render Azazel quite harmless. Exactly. At the heart of his own domain, Morpheus is functionally omnipotent. It was never a fight to begin with. And he puts the jar down amongst a pile of uh, other trophies, including what is recognizably the skull of the Corinthian. That's right, a skull with teeth in its eye sockets. Also visible here are a pocket watch and a city of minarets in a glass bottle. Did you recognize that? Those may be significant at some point in the future. I guess I better take a closer look. So this actually contradicts slightly, I think, with the way that the Corinthians' unmaking was portrayed at the end of Season of Mists. Go on. I thought we just saw him dissolve into nothingness. He no- was uh, dissolved, but we did see Morpheus pluck his skull out of the mess and put it in his pocket. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Well, with Morpheus's final decision made and having just witnessed a display of his power, everybody else takes the decision quite a bit better. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, it turns out Jemmy was lying, too. She says chaos never even wanted hell, just didn't want anyone else to get it. And she has no plans of taking revenge. Right. Merkin and Karanzan head back to hell together. They ask what will become of Azazel, and Dream basically tells them that he has no plans to torture him. He's just going to let him think on his sins, and he'll probably let him out eventually. Eventually. Bast is sorry that they were unable to come to a deal, but reminds Morpheus that she does have information useful to finding his brother. My brother desires privacy, Lady Bast. And I am prepared to respect that desire. Morpheus apologizes to Odin for being unable to select him, but they're basically still friends. I hope I was not too boisterous last night, Lord. I am a bluff, rough-and-ready, take-me-as-you-find-me deity, and not one for airs and graces. I had noticed. That's uh, an exchange between Thor and Morpheus. Yes, and Thor at this point has his fist over Loki's face. Right. Preventing him from speaking, except for a moment when he manages to get out. No, you do not understand. This is wrong. Yeah. wonder what's going on there. Thor punches him in the face. I've been waiting to do that for 1,200 years. Now, the panels here are almost a perfect nine grid, but there's they're just slightly off. Mm-hmm. That just really bothered me. I'm oh, not sure I see. why. <laughs> okay. 
Well, with the matter resolved, time to take Loki back to Asgard and stuff him in his hole under the earth with his wife and his snake. Right. Just to review, as we covered in our previous Sandman episode, Loki's eternal prison involves having a snake hanging over his head, dripping venom on him. His wife attempts to catch it all in a bowl, but every so often has to stop to empty the bowl, and during that time, he basically howls in pain. Right, and his writhing in pain causes all the earthquakes in the world. We are given to understand it's basically a shitty place to live. Now, Matthew mentions that Chloricon and Susanoo have asked to stay for one more day, which Morpheus approves. And then he asks how it feels to uh, be rid of the keys to hell. It feels like a great weight has been taken from my shoulders, Matthew. It is an evil thing, that key. It corrupts by simply existing. I am well rid of it. Well, it's a good thing it went to those angels, then. I mean, they won't be corrupted by it. Will they? Yeah, that's an interesting hint. Before the matter is fully resolved, though, there's one more thing. Morpheus asks Matthew to send Nada to him. They have to talk. Right. I'll tell her you want to talk to her. I don't want to talk to her, Matthew. I doubt that she wants to talk to me. But still, we will talk. Okay. One issue left of Season of Mists. It's the epilogue, Sandman, issue number 28, written by Neil Gaiman, with art by Mike Dringenberg again, and inks by George Pratt. In which we bid farewell to absent friends, lost loves, old gods, and the season of mists, and in which we give the devil his due. Now, the extended title for this issue is a reference to the toast that Hop Gadling made back in the second issue of Season of Mists. Yeah, also, the title on the cover is listed as Chapter Infinity. This is true. The cover also depicts Morpheus and Nada in a fairly abstracted form. Yeah, very stylized. We open in Hell, where Remiel and Duma watch as the demons return. And uh, with the demons, the dead will follow soon. Duma, now naked, the angels have previously been basically draped in togas, says nothing, even though, as Remiel points out, he's not the Angel of Silence anymore. Yeah, now he's just really boring company. (laughs) Back in the dreaming, Morpheus waits nervously for Nada. This is a really neat sequence of panels, showing him behaving in a much more human way than we're accustomed to. Yeah, he certainly looks like he's nervous for this meeting. I also liked how this was kind of a two-page spread. Mm -hmm. You have this picture of some flowers as the background, and both the ending of the scenes in Hell and the beginning of the scenes in The Dreaming are presented in frames over top of this background. Nada arrives. Morpheus suggests that she must be hungry, and she replies rather testily to that. I was very hungry for the first few thousand years, but after that I grew used to the hunger, and it ceased to concern me as it once did. I have no true body anymore, after all. I am one of the dead. After that, there's a false start where they both start talking at the same time. Morpheus gives her the floor, but she says he has something to say to her. She's fishing for an apology, and she has the right to one. Yes, indeed. Nada, ten thousand years ago, I I condemned you to hell. I now think, think I might have acted wrongly. I think perhaps I should apologize. I should tell you that I am sorry. You think you may have acted wrongly? You think perhaps... You'll apologize? You think? And now what? You expect me to accept that and say no more? 
one half-hearted apology and you've somehow kissed it all better? I spent 10,000 years in hell. I could scarcely stand in that oubliette. I burned by day and froze by night. Glass shards cut my flesh. I starved and hurt and wept and waited. All that because of you. And you think perhaps you should apologize. You. You. You make me sick. And then she gives him one hell of a slap. All right. Now, Morpheus's apology here reflects the form of his thinking out loud realization back in the first issue of this story arc that he had done wrong at his meeting with the other Endless. And so, even though, like, she absolutely has a great point that he's sort of barely apologizing for a really heinous thing that he's done, we can see also how stiff he usually is and how much of a stretch it has been for him to apologize to that level. Yeah, now, upon being slapped, he reacts quite proudly at first, but then catches himself. You hit me, Nada. You struck me. No one may strike me. And here, here at the heart of the dreaming, I should... I... I ought to... Yes? What will you do to me, Dream Lord? Send me back to hell? No. This is a fantastic character beat for Morpheus. We've mentioned before that one of the big, big themes of this series is whether a person, or a being in this case, can change. And when she rejects him a little bit in this scene, he reacts very much the same way that he did 10,000 years ago. Yeah, but he catches himself and then offers a much more profound apology. I... I am sorry, Nada. You are right. What I did was foolish and heartless and... and unfair. You hurt my pride and I hurt you. I was wrong. There is nothing else I can say. Now... They stand and stare for a full panel. And then they... almost kiss? Maybe kiss? It's left interestingly ambiguous. I read it as a kiss, but we don't actually see a lip lock. They're just very close, and then in the next panel, they're not. At this point, he offers for her to be queen of the dreaming. She replies, I said no to that offer 10,000 years back, dream. I have not changed my mind. But you could give all this up, you know. You suggested that once before, Nada. My answer has not changed. I have my responsibilities. I cannot abandon them. So... Since she won't stay and he won't go, they have to decide what's to become of her. I think that's a pretty cool moment for Nada, too. She's a queen, after all, and even after 10,000 years, it's obviously a horrific and undeserved fate, but it hasn't changed her mind. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Now we get Susano, and he appears to be sneaking around. Yeah, he's trying to sneak out of the palace. Uh, once again, Susanoo's panels are drawn in a sort of pseudo-ukiyo-e style. Uh, sort of a very flat woodcut style. Oh yeah, sure. He is caught trying to sneak out of the palace by Morpheus. He tries to explain that he's been unexpectedly summoned back to the floating bridge of heaven. But Morpheus isn't buying it. Yeah, now, being basically a, a very self-abasing person. Susanoo says that he was unworthy of Dream's hospitality, and Dream rather rudely replies, Unworthy of my hospitality? Yes. Yes, I think perhaps you were. Yeah, and it turns out that it actually isn't Susanoo. It is Loki. Yeah, exactly. Morpheus dares to call him out in this way because he is not a uh, deity of the floating kingdom. 
he is Loki in disguise, and as he changes, he is still wearing Susanoo's robe, but his hair bursts into glorious red flame. You guessed! Perhaps if I had realized sooner, it might have saved one of my guests some inconvenience. Poor Susano o no Makoto. Why him, Loki? Because he was standing next to me while everyone was watching you and Azazel. And because I don't like storm gods. I wonder who that's a reference to. Yeah. Now, Susanoo being a guest of Morpheus, you know, he's, he's also entitled to the rights of hospitality. Morpheus can't just let him suffer in Loki's place under the earth. Right, but what he can do is create a dream facsimile. No one will ever know that Loki is loose. And if he does this, Loki will owe him a great debt. Loki agrees. Very well, Loki. Let us talk. Once again, it's time to wheel and deal. In the Great Hall, we find Clurikon and Nuala preparing to leave. Clurikon is uh, complaining about the unlikelihood of seeing his one-night stand again, um, which is a neat moment for him. Basically, affected by this affair a lot more than he expected to be. I wonder if he'll write to me. Could you read it if he did? Mm. Dearest Chloricon, Falcon Squiggly Line, I, Little Man Holding a Flail, Jug Squiggle Beetle. I see what you mean. So Morpheus arrives and interrupts their conversation. Chloricon chooses that moment to reveal the full terms of Titania's offer. Nuala was not just a gift in payment for not handing hell over to anybody. She's a gift regardless. Yeah, and she would be most displeased if her gift were refused, and probably Nuala would bear the brunt of that displeasure. Yeah, there's a neat panel here at the bottom of this page of Chloricon's whoops face as he reveals to Nuala her fate. Yeah, basically we're shown that he was supposed to tell her much earlier, but is too much of a chicken. Yeah, I think that's right. He's revealing really bad news to her, and uh, he sort of expects her to have sympathy for him just because it was a hard reveal to have to do. Right. But Morpheus extends his hospitality, and uh, he says that he'll put her in an out-of-the-way place. However, if you are to remain here in Nuala, you must remove the glamour you wear. I mislike little magics in this realm. He gestures, and where the statuesque blonde Nuala stood, a puckish little pixie Nuala remains. Yeah, this whole thing struck me as rather unfair to her. You know, not only is she being traded back and forth as a gift, which sucks, but also she has to have her beauty taken away. It seems like she's kind of getting punished for nothing here. This is true, although, I mean, her glamour is sort of fake beauty. This is the real Nuala, and there's some virtue in that, I think. Well, fair enough. This is sort of what I meant when I referred to the camera, so to speak, or the art calling attention to her beauty. Now we find out that she was preternaturally beautiful in the previous issue because she was using a spell to appear that way. I see. Clericon mentions, It's been so long since I've seen your natural face, my sister, I'd almost forgotten what it looked like. But Morpheus is on to other things. Nada is ready to go. Right. She's made her decision. We don't know exactly what her choices were, but we know that she chose the second one. Yes. Morpheus says that he'll always care about her. She asks if she'll know that he cares about her, and he tells her that, no, she won't. But he will know that he cares. Right. 
In Hong Kong, over the course of several panels, a baby is born. After the infant is left in her bassinet, Morpheus appears in the ward and picks her up and says, And I will not forget you, Nada. Live a good life. You will always be welcome in the dreaming, whatsoever body you wear. Farewell. So he's given her a brand new life. Right. After screwing up her first one all those millennia ago, and I believe they said that she was only about 18 at the time, she gets reincarnated and gets a fresh try. That's sort of the best Morpheus can do to make amends. Now we return to a character that we haven't seen in a few issues here. Sitting on a beach in Perth, Australia, is Lucifer himself. He's approached by an old gentleman who identifies him as sleeping rough. Meaning he's homeless. Right. Uh, I will attempt to do this man's Australian accent, but no promise. (laughs) Go for it. Come down here most evenings to watch the sunset. It's a beaut tonight, isn't it? Yes, I suppose that it is. The older fellow tells the story of his life a little bit. He had a wife and twin sons, but one of the sons was killed in Vietnam, and the other one, distraught, caused a car accident in which he died, and his father suffered a disabling injury to a leg. Later, his wife died of cancer. Yeah, he basically lost his whole family to one tragedy after another. I've had a shit of a life, all things considered. But I think any god that can do sunsets like that, a different one every night, Struth, well, you've got to respect the old bastard, haven't you? He wanders off and left alone. Lucifer grins as he speaks to someone unseen. All right, I admit it. He's got a point. The sunsets are bloody marvelous, you old bastard. Satisfied? Next, we find ourselves in hell. The demons have returned and the torture resumes. Remiel sort of narrates their situation, still unable to elicit any response from Duma, unable to tell what he's thinking. Both angels are naked now, although featureless. Yeah, now Remiel has had the thought that because this is hell, it's actually an opportunity. The people are in so much pain that any act of kindness is immensely magnified. He finds a demon torturing a fellow and stops him. That was the old hell. That was a place of mindless torture and purposeless pain. There will be no more wanton violence, no further suffering inflicted without a reason or explanation. We will hurt you, and we are not sorry. But we do not do it to punish you. We do it to redeem you. Because afterward you'll be a better person. And because we love you, one day you'll thank us for it. Yeah, and my first thought upon reading this was, that seems kind of worse. And then on the next page... (laughs) That's right, the person being tortured agrees. That makes it worse. That makes it so much worse. Remiel flies off, thinking that maybe hell isn't so bad. He's now smiling self-righteously at the screams. After all, this is part of the plan, is it not? Then how could it not be for the best, in this, the best of all possible worlds? Perhaps events have ended happily after all. Happily ever after in hell. So this kind of reminded me, have you ever read Candide? I have not. So the basic point of it is it has this character who has been raised to believe that they are living in the best possible world. Okay. And as he travels around the world, he sees all sorts of horrible, inhumane things going on, and it just kind of basically mocks the idea that the world we live in could possibly be 
the best possible world. Well, it's kind of critiquing religion by satirizing the urge to justify the evils and injustices that exist in the world. Right, exactly. So this reminded me a lot of that. We have one more page here. The narration that we just saw we now see in Destiny's book. He closes the book and continues walking in his garden. And we end on a quotation from G.K. Chesterton from a book that he never wrote. October knew, of course, that the action of turning a page, of ending a chapter, or of shutting a book did not end a tale. Having admitted that, he would also avow that happy endings were never difficult to find. It is simply a matter, he explained to April, of finding a sunny place in a garden where the light is golden and the grass is soft, somewhere to rest, to stop reading, and to be content. So this is not an actual Chesterton quote? Right. The uh, epigram tells us that this Chesterton quote can be found in the Library of Dreams. Right. Where, I will remind you that Lucian, Morpheus's librarian, keeps a library of every book that somebody thought of but never wrote. So, that was a heck of an ending to that story arc. Yeah, that's one of the things we should talk about. This was, of course, an eight-issue story arc that took us three episodes to cover. What do you think of these three issues as a climax and resolution to that story? I thought it was really clever. Once again, we get a confrontation of sorts, but Neil Gaiman manages to write his way out of having to do a typical fight scene. Mm -hmm. And instead, we get this kind of unexpected twist that resolves the whole situation in a rather bizarre way. That is, he doesn't have to choose because the angels deliver the message that God wants hell back, essentially, and Morpheus is able to decide that it was never his, it always belonged to its creator. Yeah, and this happens in the seventh of the eight-part series, which allows part eight to be... You know, it's an epilogue wrapping up a few things, but it's largely devoted to the reconciliation between Dream and Nada, which, you know, we get to to really hear her out, which I think is important. Yeah, I I feel like that's a very important moment. For Morpheus' character development especially, he needed to face the fact that he had done something wrong. That has been what the story was about from the beginning, and so he really needed to have that awkward conversation with somebody who um, who can confront him with real anger over his actions, and who he has to muster a genuine apology to. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's great to see him starting to grow as a character. Yeah, and some lovely writing and body language in their interactions as well. Yeah, we should talk about the art a little bit. Okay. I think all the issues were penciled by Kelly Jones, except for the first and the last, okay, which were penciled by Mike Dringenberg. Yeah, and the Matt Wagner side story in the middle. Oh, yes, that's right. The Dead Boy Detectives was not either of them. Yeah. Um, I know you found Kelly Jones's art hit and miss in the past. Yeah, and I think there's a few misses in here, but generally speaking, he does quite well. I also generally enjoy Dringenberg, too. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not perhaps as wildly creative as Sam Keith would have done it, but I do think Jones did a good job with the distinctive and weird designs for all of the gods and creatures that attend Morpheus's palace. Thor, in particular, is a really over-the-top design. Yeah, no, it's true. A lot of the designs are really cool, and the way that they are all portrayed in slightly different art styles Mm -hmm. is very satisfying. Sam Keith would have been maybe more directly imaginative in the character designs, but I have a hard time imagining him just sampling several different styles in that way. 
Yeah, these are broadly iconic character designs, and they're each kind of rendered in their own little idiom. Right. Yeah, very cool. So this is clearly setting up a couple of things. We definitely see some things here that are going to have an impact later in the series. What stuck out to you? So Loki is on the loose. That's right. Now, Nuala now lives in the dreaming and is going to be quite unaccustomed to that. Mm -hmm. And Lucifer is ready to scamper off and have a solo book. Yeah, that's right. Detailing his adventures on Earth. That's right. And, And that is a book that Vertigo will publish eventually. Between Puck, Lucifer, and Loki... Morpheus has set quite a regiment of horrors loose on the world. Yeah, well, we'll see. Of course, none of them are quite bad guys in the the way this series is written and presented. Lucifer, in particular, has been very straightforward about claiming that he's not evil. Yeah, that's true. Although he does sort of scoff at morality. Yeah, that's true. We have here the very unsettling implication that hell is no longer run by evil demons who exist to cause pain, but now by angels who consider what they do a kindness. Right. Hell is now directly under the auspices of heaven. Right. Yeah. As we've mentioned a couple of times in the past on this podcast, we are given to understand in Hellblazer, at least, that the war between heaven and hell is the only thing giving human beings any free will. That's true. I did think of that, rereading these issues now in the context of having a lot more Constantine under my belt that John would really not be happy to hear that the war between heaven and hell is over. Yeah, it's a bit of a scary thought. So, having read all of Sandman before, where would you say that this ranks uh, in terms of the Sandman maxi arcs? Hmm. Of the large arcs, I would actually say this is probably my favorite. All right, nice. And I think a number of the large arcs are not strongly Morpheus-focused. Obviously, the first one was, as he sort of recovers his tools and proceeds with his life. Right. Doll's House spent a lot of time with other characters, spent a lot of time on the viewpoint of Rose Walker. Yeah, Whereas this one is mostly very close to Morpheus as a viewpoint character. I think this one might be the most cleverly executed. Okay. But lacking Rose Walker, it maybe lacks an important sympathetic foil. Okay, so you like to have you like to have a viewpoint character who can view Morpheus from the outside and challenge him a little bit? Yeah, exactly. Nada challenges him here in issue 8 of the story arc, mm-hmm. but for most of it she doesn't, you know, get to appear and speak for herself, so that doesn't really count. Yeah, that's true. What do you think of the idea of a happy ending in hell? Oh, well that I thought I found that deeply ironic, obviously. Mm-hmm. Since, uh, like we said, it's it's much worse now that they think they're hurting you for your own good. Right. And we are told in a fairly metatextual way that this is almost like this is almost like the happy ending for the series. <laughs> that's what the that's what the Chesterton quote tells us, right? If you want a happy ending, eventually you have to stop reading because every story ends in the same place. So if you want a happy ending, stop here. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that means darker things to come Yeah, for the Sandman series. Well, all right. So that was our last Vertigais episode of 2017. We will be returning at some point in January after a little hiatus. 
That's right. We're looking forward to getting back with you fine people and tackling the final installment of The Fear Machine in Hellblazer. John Constantine. He's not the Fear Machine. No, but he is the Hellblazer. Yeah. Well, all right. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. That's right. If you want to get in touch with us, and we would certainly love to hear from you, you can do so via Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com, Twitter at vertiguys, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you're listening to us on Apple's Podcasts app, we would love it if you would give us a ranking or a review. That stuff is really important to uh, helping new listeners find the podcast. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.